Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, historians Donal O'Driscoll, Helene O'Keefe and John Borganovo discuss the bestseller Atlas of the Irish Revolution with moderator Katrina Crowe, recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 7th of October 2018. You're all very welcome to listen to this very eminent panel talk about one of the great legacy projects of the decade of centenaries, which we're sort of in the middle of now. We've got through the easy part, it was 1916, and now we're heading into the hard part, culminating in 1922-23. But one of the important things about all of this is to have publications such as the wonderful Atlas of the Irish Revolution to guide us as we go through these years and to give us factual, useful, entertaining valuable information about what was going on. So here is Dermot Ferriter on the Atlas of the Revolution in the Irish Times in 2017. This book magnificently dissects the Irish Revolution of 1913 to 23, layer by layer by layer, amounting to five kilograms and 1,000 pages of enlightened essays, chapters, and case studies by over 100 scholars with accompanying maps, tables, statistics, photographs, and documents. It should not be lifted without first bending the knees. But it should be read, consulted, and savoured for many years to come by anyone with an interest in modern Irish history. It is also very fairly priced, given the extent of what it offers. It costs 59 squid, which is a tiny amount of money for such a thing. And I hear from uh, the gentleman here that uh, only 20,000 copies have been sold. That's not every household in Ireland. So those of you who haven't bought it, rush out afterwards where you will find it for sale in the foyer, and you, you will not regret it. Once you get it home and have done your weightlifting, uh, it will sit in a, a special spot in your house, and you'll consult it very regularly. Now, we're lucky to have three of the people centrally involved in the Atlas with us today. Donald O'Driscoll, just across from me here, is Senior Lecturer in History at UCC. He's a contributor to and one of the editors of the Atlas. He's published widely on, a ver on various aspects of modern Irish history, including censorship in Ireland, 1939-45, neutrality, politics, and society. He's also written a political biography of the writer and socialist Republican Padre O'Donnell, and four co-authored books on the history of Cork institutions, Murphy's and Beamish's breweries, the English market, and Cork Airport. He's a very Cork person. I was, I was talking to him last week about the whole business of what was happening in 1918 because I'm involved in a project in that. And he said, I think we have some good stuff on the separas. That's the separation women. Now, I'd never heard that before, and I thought it was magnificent. And we really should be looking at the separas. But anyway, great. Um, Donal is a former editor of Sayher, the Journal of uh, Irish Labour History. And he acted as historical advisor on Ken Loach's two films with Irish historical themes, The Wind That Shakes the Barley and Jimmy's Hall. In between um, John and Donal is Tralee, born historian, historian Helen O'Keefe, and she's currently head of education and communications at the Heritage Council. She received her PhD on Robert Emmett, oral tradition and collective memory in 2009, and her book, To Speak of Easter Week, a study of second generation memory of the 1916 Rising, was published in October 2015. Most recently, she completed a postdoctoral fellowship in UCC as a researcher on the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, and she's the coordinator of the Atlas Schools Outreach Programme. And then last but not least, Dr. John Borganovo, here on my right, teaches history in University College Cork. He's a contributor to and associate editor of the Atlas of the Irish Revolution. He's published widely on the revolutionary period, including the dynamics of war and revolution, 
Cork City, 1916-18, published in 2014, and Spies, Informers, and the Anti-Sinn Féin Society, The Intelligence War in Cork City, 1920-21, published in 2007. And he is currently the coordinator of UCC's Decade of Centenaries program. So I'm going to ask each of them to talk for about five minutes uh, to give us their thoughts on the Atlas. Donal, I would suggest, talk about the origins of the project, how it relates to the, the Atlas of the Great Irish Famine, another wonderful historical geography project. Helene on the outrage, uh, sorry, outreach. <laughs> I used to look after things called outrage papers for years and it stays in the head. Um, the outreach and education aspects of the project and John, perhaps on some of the content uh, and why choices were made. So Donna, let's start with you. Okay, so thanks a million Katrina for the introduction and for all your help actually on the project. Um, 2004, John Crowley and Mike Murphy, the two, two fellow editors, are working on the Atlas of Cork City, and they asked me to do a chapter on sort of aspects of Cork during the troubled time, 1940-23, really. Um, and as we were putting that together, we put a few simple maps together on that basis, and a sort of a seed was planted, and we said, come here, there's potential in this. Um, we could actually do an entire Atlas based on the revolutionary period, and at the time we were thinking, is the material there, how will we do it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they went off and did the Atlas of the Great Irish Famine, and I twiddled my thumbs for another 10 years, and um, we came back in about 2013, when the famine, which was such a great success, um, had sort of established the Atlas model, if you like. Um, and by 2013, everything had changed, as we heard earlier on the excellent film, Dermot's film. Um, 2003 was the, the Bureau, the military service pensions material had come on stream. Digitization had really taken off. The archives were opening. The material was there. And, you know, it was a really sort of exciting challenge. So we set about doing it then um, on the basis that, you know, the material was there. And whereas the film earlier captured the kind of qualitative, I suppose, dimensions of that military service sort of data, um, we were interested more in the quantitative clearly. So, um, because maps require data, and that's, that's how we do it. So, so it's all sorts of, of maps. With the, what we set out to do really was not just the military story, but the political story, the social story, the, the civic story, I suppose, the story of women, um, of loyalists, of those you know, who joined the British Army, of you know, everything we could possibly think of, which is why the thing is so bloody enormous. Um, and you can see 1913, the tenements. Um, you know, we go all the way back to 1798. <laughs> bring it up to about 1937. Um, it's really impossible to chop out any of that. You know, we found, okay, 1912 to 23 is the, the centerpiece, but really, as it, as it grew, it literally grew and grew and grew. Uh, so we brought it to the exact point where you couldn't bind the, the book if it was any bigger. Um, and, you know, it was a huge, then we just had to just mobilize all the data. We had to, to concentrate. We decided that visualization, as you can see here, the, the, the idea of, of rarely seen photographs, um, of using documents, actually reproducing documents that could be read, um, and posters and leaflets and everything from the period just to get a feel of the period and sort of portals and, and windows into that period itself. So the combination of all those things and then all the 120 contributors that we mobilised, um, I suppose taking advantage of the new atmosphere that had developed really in that period as well, you know, uh, collegiality, the kind of lack of rancour that had characterised Irish historiography previously during the Troubles, 
And um, I suppose it was perfect timing, really, in many ways. And, you know, we, we brought it out eventually in 2017 as opposed to 16, so it didn't get lost in the 2016 um, uh, overcrowding. Uh, so we're actually delighted with the way it turned out and uh, really happy. Great. Well, congratulations again. Maybe I'll go to John next, maybe yeah. to talk about the, the way that content was chosen. Dermot, our, our donor has just given us uh, an outline of the general principles underlying it and the dates that you have covered and how you had to go very far back and quite a bit forward. What sort of choices had to be made about what you put into this book? Well, it's basically, you think about it, it's kind of three components. It's essays by historians and contributors, including yourself, mm -hmm. um, about over 100. <clears throat> And then it's also maps, and the maps are kind of a key, a key part of all this, and um, there are about 300 maps, and most of the maps are original, and most of the original ones, not all of them, but most of them were kind of done by our editorial team, and we went out and actually found, we were kind of familiar with archival uh, uh, collections that could be converted into maps. And so uh, that was a kind of a long process, and all of us were kind of involved in various and different kind of ma mapping exercises and gathering that data and then handing it off to our cartographers who then created the maps. So you got the maps as well, and then you also have images. And so as Donald said, we, we kind of had a, a principle. We didn't want to use familiar images that had been seen before. So we made an effort to try to get kind of rarely seen photographs. But then also we wanted to make, we wanted to bring the color. Part of the whole thing about the revolutionary period is the media of it was, was really an important component. And these cultural nationalists were very good at propaganda. Mm -hmm. And so their propaganda materials are really rich and really kind of bringing into it. So we wanted to kind of capture that. Um, and then also another thing, and then, and then as Donald also said, we use primary documents as source documents because as historians and archivists, you know, we kind of we almost assume that everyone sees as much cool stuff as we do, but actually seeing something written down on the page, in handwritten or typed up or kind of you know funky stencil or you know little <laughs> you know burn marks on the page really brings it alive. So we wanted to help convey that, and basically, um, we used as kind of we used our contributors. So that was all done at kind of the 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 op the, the early stages of the project. And we actually had most of those contributions done within about a year or so. Uh, and then what we did was we supplemented them with maps, and then we kind of used the images to fill in any kind of gaps that we were seeing. Um, one of the things was we realized that we, we could be accused of being too cork-based, and we and we Never. felt we, we felt Tipperary might be hard done by. So we were kind of <laughs> making last-minute scrambles looking for photos for Tipperary because we knew they'd be you know. So it was it was things like that, and and then also using the images to um, have long captions that would be kind of mini narratives to provide almost another narrative arc underneath it. So that was where a lot of the, the, the heavy lifting was done in kind of the last two years of the project. So it was about a four year project and really we were doing a, a lot of writing um, in the last two years. We we're doing a lot of kind of data management uh, of just all the different sources that were coming in. And we also had this great we had great cooperation from all the major archives and a lot of the major collections around the country to the extent that we could pick up a phone and, and call somebody and ask for a certain image and we'd have it you know, that same day. Something is unheard of. And so that kind of, that really facilitated it and that's kind of what made, gave it kind of the, 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 depth, the depth of it and the kind of complexity, so. 
wonderful, well described. Um, I, I was going to ask you that question of how difficult was it to get images mm. from people, but you've just answered it. And I think all of the cultural institutions and people who have archives now understand how credible this kind of project is and that it's a wonderful way to get their material out mm -hmm. into the public and they're, they're willing to cooperate. Helene, you have been involved in the school's outreach program, and I'm sure everyone is dying to hear about how that's going and how young people are reacting to the material. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, the genesis of the school's outreach program was um, that this very lucky researcher got uh, an invitation to come involved with the, the research team for the Atlas. And during that process, having spent 15 years as a post-primary history teacher myself. Um, obviously, the, the new material being generated as a historian was fascinating, fascinating from that point of view, but as a teacher, um, oh, just, I found myself getting just excited about the potential of that material in the classroom um, in terms of being accessible to so many different learners. Um, as Dilma said, it was very good timing. It was good timing for schools as well in the sense that there's an awful lot of development um, around curricular reform at the moment in schools and there's an awful lot more freedom for, for teachers to, to look for material outside tr traditional textbooks and the Atlas obviously offers a fantastic opportunity for that. Um, but with regard to second level education, the, the maps are the most wonderful resource in that for example, a student that might find it difficult to glean an idea uh, through reading pages of, of History of the Famine, for example. Um, a map uh, quite early in the book which just demonstrates the excess deaths, for example, um, during the famine. Um, and uh, quite obviously the, the western seaboard is, is significant in that sense, but it's very visually, very immediately uh, depicted to, to, to kids and they, they can really pick up on that. And then of course, the beautiful combination of the maps plus the images and the paintings and the primary source material allows students to engage in skills acquisition because they can trace where the quantitative data obviously displayed in the maps originated from and how it was changed from one, one form of data to another. Um, then obviously they, they, they can examine the maps as a very clinical aspect of history, but then they can trace that themselves through fantastic archives like the Bureau of Military History witness statements, which they can now access themselves online and bring a human face to what's depicted in the maps. So there was just this enormous potential, um, I thought, for developing a school's outreach program uh, where, where, where children junior cycle and senior cycle could gain access to this amazing resource. Um, so it sort of began in two stages. I have a couple of slides, actually. Can I? Would you like to show us? Can I show those? Show us them to us. So there was two strands. Uh, the first strand was a travelling exhibition uh, for schools. So we began with that. And that was um, quite simply 12 uh, pull-up banners, um, easily done. And the banners, the 12 of them, uh, broadly traced the different um, sections of the atlas. So starting with the famine period, uh, moving up uh, through uh, the 1913, the social movement, into 1916, of course, and then on to the War of Independence and the Civil War. So the students could trace it chronologically and, and see maps depicting each of those different sections. And those sections, of course, also related to the um, topics that they, they study themselves in history at junior and senior cycle. So that was a fantastic experience on a very personal level, being able to actually go into the schools with the 
the Atlas exhibition, put it on display for a week and then return to the schools and just give a, a talk to the schools about the process of putting the Atlas together. And some of the questions that came from the school children between 12 and 18 years old were deeply insightful and I actually brought them back on occasion to the Atlas team for, for answers because they, they were wonderful. The kids really, really engaged with the maps. Um, the second part of the, or actually I've got a couple of photographs there. Um, so the visual aspect of them, the, they're very attractive, first of all, just in terms of uh, getting the attention of the kids. And also they can just, they can go into them in terms of how, however many levels they feel comfortable with them themselves if that makes sense. There's, there's layers of information they can glean from maps. So a very surface um, level of information or much deeper depending how they or their teachers want to, to lead them into them. Um, the second idea was around actually online resources for schools and someone mentioned recently that um, a teachers conference I, I attended, they mentioned recently that there's three different types of resources offered to teachers. The first type are the raw resources, the second type are half cooked and the third type are fully cooked. So the raw resources are the ones where you're simply providing them with the photographs or the paintings or the, um, the documents. And then the teachers obviously can utilize those in the classroom in whatever way they like or whatever way fits in with their own um, uh, teaching practice. Second is half-baked. So they're the ones where a couple of worksheets around the lesson plans perhaps some guidance in terms of linking a map to another resource outside um, available online. And the third type is fully cooked, which is quite um, sort of prescriptive lesson plans. So in this case, we offered all three. So a document pack um, was, well, there's the, the online access. So the, online, the, the resource material was put online on this we were very lucky to have um, an established online database, which was a fantastic collaboration between UCC and the Irish Examiner. And its purpose originally was to showcase um, UCC research, to democratise an awful lot of the research that was done um, in UCC, and then to illustrate it with fantastic archival material from um, the Irish Examiner. So there was that est established portal. So that was, that was where we put it, with the wonderful Nicola who helped us to design it. Um, and then once a teacher registers, they can download a series of different materials based on eight different units. And like the exhibition boards, those units are chronological, going from the famine right up to the Civil War. So they're the, the fully baked lesson plans, the teacher's packs based on each of the eight different units. And there's the, ha there's the raw material. So each uh, unit also has a document pack and that's where the maps are presented for the teachers to use in whatever way they see appropriate. The fantastic um, access, as John was saying, John Crowley had a wonderful um, relationship with the National Archives, with the, um, the Hunt Museum, was it that? No, the Sugar, um, the various different galleries as well, which provided paintings. So because we had the maps, we also had the, the documentary and visual materials, so we were able to create posters, once again, for the visual learners among students. Um, so teachers can download them, and again, there's lesson plans then and worksheets for students of junior cycle, transition year and leaving cert. And transition year, I suppose, has the most freedom in that teachers can really enjoy what the Atlas has to offer in that they, they have potentially seven weeks for students to engage and research themselves. And the joy of the Atlas, of course, is that the way 
that students really engage with history is that when it is relevant to themselves. And the maps are wonderful because they allow students, and they will immediately, to look for their own place and to bring history down to what happened in their own place during the revolutionary period, and that's what makes it relevant to them. So, so far, engagement has been fantastic. It's a different way of learning about history. It ticks the boxes of literacy, it ticks the boxes of numeracy, and also the, the new um, Department of Educational digital strategy as well. So it really, hopefully, is inspiring students across the country uh, to think about the revolutionary period in a different way. So that's, that's the educational material. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Elena. I was down myself at the History Teachers Association uh, conference a couple of days ago, um, and they love the Atlas, needless to say. They see it as a fantastic resource. But they were lamenting, as we all should, the fact that we are still in a situation where it will be possible for Irish children to stop studying history at the age of 12. And it's, it's like it's, we're sleeping walking into the dark as people did into the First World War. It's not the same effect. But, you know, if we're going to allow that to be the case, we, we really need to stop now and have a serious debate about it. I know we've been talking about it for years, but there must be somebody up there who understands the importance of history for our school children. Anyway, I'm sure everybody here is, is in favour of that, and if we get some kind of a campaign going, um, you'll all be signing up to help us out. So, just maybe to look at the... Um, the broad importance of the decade of centenaries, of which this is a huge legacy item. Um, how do you all feel about that, about where we are, what's been done so far, what remains to be done? How are we as a country managing this challenge? Because it is a challenge. Maybe John starts with you on that? Um, interesting. Uh, I thought, well, the, the, the film we just watched, obviously, um, highlighted a lot of the complexities of it. It's a contested history. Uh, it is still a contested history. They, it hasn't really, the scholarship is just catching up to it. So a lot of what we've been talking about is the availability of resources, and those have only become really, uh, scholars have only been able to access them in the last 10 years, and that's changed our perceptions. These collections we're talking about are massive, and, they've, and they're kind of revolutionizing our ability to look in, into borough and deep, take broader lens, link what's going on in Ireland to international events and what have you. So the scholarship is coming on. Um, as uh, I think Dermot also said, you know, 1916 was relatively easy. Uh, the war of independence is going to be more problematic. Uh, the nature of the conflict was a little more brutal. Uh, it was uh, also accompanied by partition, which remains a very much a hot spot, a hot, a hot topic of dispute, and then it's followed by, or is contemporarily was uh, uh, accompanied the Irish Civil War, which basically gave us our modern political system. So all those events are um, potentially problematic. That being said, what we saw in 1916, I think gave, or 2016, I think gave everyone a lot of, a lot of optimism. Uh, everyone's able to deal with it in a relatively uh, uh, good fashion, uh, an open fashion. What I found as an outsider, even though I'm, you might not know this, I'm not from Cork originally, uh, <laughs> but what I found as an outsider is people just want to learn more. That's all. Like, you know, there's some people who have their access to bear, but even people who are, you know, keeping the flame 
uh, are also interested in expanding their knowledge. And I think the, the scholars and the academics are very much, have a lot of stuff in motion. And what we were trying to do with, with the Atlas was create a resource. And I think that was really the, its success, was that people just want to learn more. So. That's, that's well said. Donald? Yeah, the, the whole state-centred sort of nature of this mm -hmm. is what worries me a little bit. Sure. Um, not worries me, but, you know, it's in terms of the broader picture. I think people relate much more to the local story, to the family story, to the women's history, to workers' history, you know, to, to those other dimensions, the kind of liminal stuff, the, the maybe the subaltern stuff. I think we tried to bring a lot of that through as well mm -hmm. and use the maps to kind of present that, you know, Look at the, you know, we see these kind of maps for ITGW branches, we see them for all sorts of things. This is RAC stations, but you know, the whole country was involved here. Every parish had an IRA company, every parish virtually had a, had a trade union branch, every parish had a common amount branch. You know, there was suffrage meetings all across the country, you know, it wasn't just Dublin centred, it wasn't just these elites. Um, and I think that's, you know, what, what we constantly try to bring across in the maps is that all Ireland thing is the bottom-up stuff, the people's history, really, in many ways. And that's what I'd be sort of emphasising, I think, in, in the coming years. I think we've done pretty good. Uh, I think 1913 and, you know, the, the, the Tenement Museum and all that came out of that uh, was very, very important. 1916, by its nature, was more formalised, I suppose. Um, and the Civil War, I don't think we need to fear it. I mean, Jesus, we're big enough. I um, hope nobody you know, does, but the, the yeah. state may have certain Yeah, powers. right, this is it, you know. You but know, that's but I, like I think the, and it was something you said earlier, Donald, or the, the collegiality that has now developed among academics and scholars on this is remarkable and greatly to be praised. Mm. As you say, there used to be terrible Rousebrun historians. Uh, somebody once said, the Rouse and academia are so bitter because the stakes are so low. <laughs> not anymore, um, though. Not anymore. <laughs> And you know, you look at something like the Cambridge History of Ireland, uh, and there's two things: it's, it's collegiality and speed. That th these huge projects are getting done, including your own, in a remarkably short space of time, uh, and that is greatly to everyone's credit. I mean, I think our university sector has a lot to be proud of, and our history departments have a lot to be proud of, in terms of all of this. And ye have become the people who are steering this in terms of scholarship and perception and analysis, well in advance of the events that that were going to be commemorating when we get to that point. The, another aspect of this, I suppose, is that, that both the Atlas of the, the Famine and this one are collaborations between historians and geographers. We don't have the geographers here today, but how have you guys found that? Has it been something that has, I mean, you, you've developed the whole business of the maps. I'll never forget when I saw the map of the suffrage stuff in the Atlas. I thought I had no idea it was so extensive. And that kind of research is, is amazing to get. But talk a little uh, about the collaboration between historians and geographers. You start first yeah. and then well, we'll move along. It's been a pleasure, I must say. Uh, John Crowley, in particular, who's a historical geographer, yeah. uh, has been wonderful. He's been a guiding spirit in all these Atlas projects. And he's really, I think, done a lot to bring historical geography to the fore. Um, for us, it was a learning curve, I must say, for me anyway, um, the, the, the amount of absolute donkey work that's involved in producing the most basic map um, was horrific. Um, and the number crunching, which isn't my favorite thing, but I got into it, um, Excel sheets, GIS systems, all the rest of it. Um, but what a revelation, you know, when you, see, when you see all that work getting visually articulated like this and visualized like this, and as Elaine was saying, you know, what a learning tool it is. And, and for anybody, not just students, but anybody to look at a map and say, aha, 
you know, it's a, it's a, it really is a, it's massively worthwhile. So historical geographers haven't really engaged with the revolutionary period, mm -hmm. um, and historians haven't really engaged with maps that much or with the geography, with yeah. exception of the Fitzpatrick, obviously, and mm -hmm. uh, Peter Hart. Um, and Tom Garvin and, and Rump, I suppose, to some extent, the only ones, but they were kind of standouts mm -hmm. going right back to the 90s. But the, that wasn't really followed up on subsequently. So, you know, it was brilliant to be able to do it, and it's, it's opened up a whole kind of exciting new and area. Hopefully, it, it will become a way that every historian yeah, sees as managing so. things. How, how do you get on with your geography colleagues on all of this as, as this is a learning resource? Is there competition between history teachers and geography teachers in schools? Or was there when you were teaching? <laughs> Less so now, I think. Um, just uh, before I go on to that, just a, a point again about working with the, the geographers in UCC. One of my favourite parts of the process of, of bringing the atlas together and working as a researcher on it was um, the bi-weekly, which eventually became weekly Friday afternoon meetings where the geographers and the historians would come together. Okay. And very often, as Joan was saying, the number crunching, we drilled and... and, and I suppose, divined information from a lot of primary source documents and, as you said, transferred them into spreadsheets. So the last that the historians would have seen of all of this, of this information was in pages of spreadsheets. So on those Friday afternoon meetings, uh, Mike Murphy, who was the cartographer, uh, would often arrive with a, a sheaf of maps and present them on the table. Um, and the wonderful thing is that these two in particular, um, historians of Irish history, incredibly uh, erudite on the subject, but still, when the maps would be passed around, uh, the historians would begin to see things that perhaps they hadn't mm -hmm. thought about before, just mm -hmm. distribution of patterns or, you know, the change or variety, you know, aspects that, that actually prompted questions, which was, which was fantastic. Um, in schools, I think that there is, there's always going to be jealousy of your own subject. Mm. Um, and there's always, I mean, there's different curricula and now specifications for the different subjects, but I think as the junior cycle is, is, is changing education at, at uh, junior cycle level, there is more collaboration between, between teachers and being offered opportunities like the Atlas of the Irish Revolution as a resource offers more opportunity for collaboration as well. Um, it's, it's a triumph of interdisciplinary work and it's geography and history most certainly, but also art history, um, also mathematics and science because the maps are you know, visual depictions of, of numerical data. Um, and there's wonderful opportunity, for example, for students to look at a map and then to, to move that information into something like a graph or a pie chart depicting information that they saw on the graph. So, you know, it's not just history and geography that the, the maps offer opportunity for collaboration for, it's, it's across the different curricula. Um, so I hope that answers your no, question. No, that certainly yeah. does. And collegiality is obviously the order of the day and everyone's getting on like, house on fire, what's happened? <laughs> John, fake news. Hard, uh, fake news indeed. Tell us about, this is a horrible question to ask you, but what, what were the issues most difficult to deal with in the Atlas? In terms of, in terms of productions or in terms of subjects? In terms of content. Um, Protestant uh, experience of the revolution, uh, that's, that's, that's been a hot one. Um, the, uh, the Kill Michael debate, that's a hot one. Um, there are uh, Bloody Sunday. That was that was one we wanted to get right. You're aware of these. Of so there are hot topics that you that you view as potential minefields, and there are also um, watershed moments that you realize that you mm -hmm. that you have to. So we're cognizant of uh, of 
what was going on in, in Ulster during all this. Um, I think I think probably one of our most controversial maps, which is one that hasn't really gotten much play here, is is probably our Lisburn, the burnings of Catholics in Lisburn, which isn't a really mm -hmm. widely known story, and we map that. Um, so you, you you're not sure how, what's you know their potential landmines and then their uh, actual detonations, and mm -hmm. I don't think we've had all the detonations yet. So. Well, it's good to know this up to yes. the forward to. Uh, I want to give the audience a chance to engage with you, so we have about 15, 20 minutes for questions. Anyone like to start just down there in the middle? Just wait till a mic comes towards you. Just on the, the, the could you put your hand up? Yeah, great, cool. Uh, you were speaking about contested histories, and I suppose history will always be contested, but uh, I'd like to draw attention to a wonderful article in the current issue, September, October, of History Ireland, young a uh, student from Cork, from uh, Balancholic, who wrote the background to the Frank O'Connell story, Guess of the Nation. Uh, her mother, she's from Balancholic and Frank O'Connell's mother, and of course that was also the basis for the hostage. But linking again with History Island, a few uh, issues back, there was an ongoing discussion about the Bandon Valley mm. murders, which I'm sure is still contested. And have you kind of come, you talk about collegiality, have you come to kind of a consensus on that? What exactly happened there? Um, I, I, myself and Andy Bielenberg wrote an article, a pretty big article, uh, in terms of the, the, the research that went into it and actually the actual size of it about two years ago that I think is pretty convincing. Um, it, remains, it remains controversial. I mean, uh, there are people who, who, who don't like our findings. Um, and I think when you're getting uh, heat from both sides, you probably know you're doing something right. So, uh, but that's that's still. I mean, and and you know, part of these things about when you read about these events, we were talking about the Civil War or what have you. It's you know, these are also family stories, and so uh, the the Bandon Valley stuff, like the, the the people who were affected, those households are affected. There's those families are still there. That's why they take it so seriously. And I think it's the idea of just taking the history seriously um, and people respect that, even if they don't always like what you, you're telling them, as long as they know that you're taking it seriously and you're not dismissing their own viewpoint or what have you. We actually mapped the, in the, the Atlas, yep. yeah. the killings, which kind of was interesting in itself, wasn't it, given the, you know, your work on the, you know, the geography of, of yeah. how, it, how it occurred. It was, it was really revealing to me anyway. Yeah. Uh, just to say, uh, truly commend the book. Um, I'm in one of the 20,000, glad to say. But just as a question, um, my grandfather fought in the War of Independence and the subsequent Civil War, and many, many years later, he was asked, um, was it worth it? Obviously, we had self-governance, which the participants fought for, and they achieved that. But I think a lot of the participants had a high expectation of social change, and there was a legacy that they hadn't achieved that social change. And while many of them may have been fighting for the, the greater side of the governance change, there was a very strong feeling on the ground of social change need at the time. And uh, it was always a, something that was in the back of my mind when I heard that question had been asked of him. Um, would you care to comment on, was that a, an experience of other participants or is so forth? Was there a real revolution? Yeah, well, I mean, we address that in the, the atlas, so we have a whole or whole final section 
is what the two final sections, the, the penultimate one is basically the revolutionary aftermath and outcomes, uh, the two states and their massive limitations, to say the least, uh, in social terms and, and political terms and so on. Uh, the failure, I suppose, of the revolution to deliver uh, what it promised, perhaps, uh, for the majority. And then the final section of the atlas deals with memory, culture, um, and sort of reflections, both historiographical, uh, creative uh, reflections, and sort of captures that whole sense of disillusionment, really, um, with, with the outcome in the end. And of course, the Civil War poisoned everything as well. I mean, that's, that, that's central to it. But you know, one of the themes of the atlas, and something that's dear to my heart, is the kind of the sidelining of the social, socially radical dimension, because you know, the social radicals were there. They were sidelined, they were silenced, but it didn't mean they weren't there. They were outmaneuvered, uh, they suffered from poor leadership, and so on and so forth. There's lots of explanations there, but you know, it wasn't inevitable what happened. Um, and I suppose that whole sense of other possible outcomes, the whole idea of past futures is something that we try and emphasize in the book as well. Yeah, people were fired. I mean, um, you also forget, oh, it's funny, we were, we were just backstage talking to Joe Lee, and you just forget how bad the 50s were. Mm. And so these people would have been entering kind of their, the, their elderly phase when they were in, in the 50s when emigration was endemic and the economy was just in shambles. And that must have also affected how, you know, their, their, their feeling about how things worked out, the fact that all, most of their kids had to emigrate and what have you. Um, and so, um, but there was also great, there was also great pride and, and I think another thing in terms of memory, and you probably have some thoughts about memory as well, um, we also forget today the, the, the achievement of um, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British Empire because Britain, it was no, Britain at the time was the global, it was, you know, a fifth of the world's population was in the British Empire. So Ireland's DNA, its identity was this idea of successfully getting out of the British Empire. And that was a that was a tremendous achievement, which I don't I think with the passage of time and the the empire being much less of an important global force, I, th I think we don't quite appreciate um, the the extent of how it was perceived. Um, so, yeah. what do you think about the memory? Helen, have you any thoughts? Oh, just with regard to memory, I'm mean, certainly that the pride about going toe to toe with the British Empire, but you know, very often for those combatants who would have fought in the in the War of Independence, but then went on to fight in the, in the Civil War. Um, I, that instinct would have been clouded, I would imagine, mm -hmm. by what came afterwards. Um, but and of course, wouldn't necessarily have spoken to their families about it at all, um, or their experience at all. But yeah, it's also why we celebrate the War of Independence, and we were talking about that in the last session. Mm -hmm. uh, memorials celebrate the War of Independence, and they don't really sit. They don't. There's much less to celebrate about the Civil War. I remember Gene Carrigan's marvellous memoir, Another Country, where he describes watching the Late Late Show when he was, I think, 19 or 20 years old. And, this, and uh, who was the man who wrote the first book about the Civil War? Carlton Younger. Oh, yeah, yeah. Appears on, on the Late Late Show. Yeah. And he said, what Civil War? Yeah. First I ever heard of it. Yeah. The silence on the whole subject was extraordinary. And again, that goes to issues of memory and trauma and a whole bunch of things that, yeah. that you do cover in the Atlas. Somebody else down there? But since you brought up the matter there of, of um, leaving the British Empire and, and how huge that was back in the time, um, did, can you draw any parallels, or do you think there are anywhere to all the parallels, with what Britain is doing now of leaving the EU, that it is going to cause economic damage? And when we left the British Empire, we, we suffered, you know, the 
annuities were and, and the 50s could have been led on from that. Uh, do you see any parallels between that? It is said sometimes that uh, at the end of the 50s, before the Whitaker economic plan was discovered, um, that a lot of people on both sides of the Civil War parties were talking in, in Leinster House and elsewhere of, of asking Britain, would they take us back? So uh, you see, I don't want to start any row about stuff like that. But do you see any parallels or worthwhile parallels with, with uh, what Britain is doing? I don't think Boris Johnson is going to be asking the EU to take them back <laughs> in, in, in 20 or 30 years. Well, maybe they won't be Johnson anyway. Well, it's a very soft Brexit um, that happened in 22, really, in terms of the you know trade, in terms of free free movement, oh, yeah. in terms of all these issues that are being discussed in relation to, to Brexit now. Um, you know, we very much remained within the British economic sphere, didn't we? And I knew the annuities, the, the economic war and so on, uh, interrupted that. But in general terms, um, it was a very soft Brexit in, the, in reverse. Yeah, they should look to our history for some examples on the matter. But don't let's have another civil war in Britain. <laughs> the last one caused enough trouble. Who else down there? Yes, I, I don't think any of the panel would have seen a programme that was on this morning, um, I think it's Spotlight, uh, in which we were discussing the implications of the first civil rights uh, march. And the, the discussion was mainly around the problems of housing in North of Ireland. And there was an economist to produce figures. Uh, he said that um, he seemed to be a pretty uh, reputable economist, that in fact um, Catholics had got more housing in North of Ireland by that stage than in the Protestants. In fact, he, the Protestants, he said that the, the figures showed that Protestants were being discriminated against um, versus the Catholics as far as housing was concerned, um, and that there were only a very small number of county councils in the North of Ireland that actively discriminated against Catholics. I'm just using that as an example that sometimes those beautiful maps you have and the dots and things can be somewhat misleading if they're not accompanied by appropriate uh, narrative that explains what the dots mean and what is behind the actual maps that you're showing. Um, and can I just say that I wish somebody would do an atlas of, of British history. There's no history that's so distorted and so out of proportion as British history. And in fact, it's feeding into the whole Brexit situation, there's a complete distortion of British history and um, it's, 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 it's sad and it also <laughs> that their, their awareness of Irish history is absolutely nil and I say a lot of British people still think Ireland is still part of Britain. Thank you. Any thoughts on any of that? Well in terms, in terms of the, the maps, we were just using them here as just backdrop, you know, we were, weren't going to engage with them directly. Um, I think we counted maybe close to for a million words of captions um, for images and, and maps that we did in the book. So we, we go into extreme detail um, as regards explaining the maps and our interpretations of them and so on and so forth. With regards to that economist, um, I, I've never heard that point being made, I must say. It sounds like revisionism gone mad, but uh, I'd like to see the evidence. It certainly doesn't tally with everything I've ever read. Anyone else? There we go. Um, I have a, a comment to make about the um, book and also the book relating to the famine that I'm going to spend the next six months in the gym before I buy <laughs> the books. I lifted one of them yesterday and I felt uh, it's heavier than the chemistry textbooks I used to use. I thought they were heavy. The, 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 the question I have is about a comment that was made earlier on about the curtailment of the teaching of history in schools. 
What is the rationale behind that? Does anybody know? Very good question. It's very hard to get it out of the NCC, the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment, who are the people who've decided this, mm. and numerous government ministers uh, who accepted these recommendations. Um, I think at the back of it is a sense that history is difficult because the, the way that, that you're meant to answer questions and exams yeah. is narrative script. Uh, there, could, there are, of course, great changes, as Helene outlined for us, in the, uh, the later cycle, the senior mm. cycle, things like research studies for which the Atlas is a perfect uh, resource, and all of the archival material that's gone online, the Bureau of Military History, Military Service Pensions Files, the Census Records, loads of other stuff now available to students to, to learn primary research without having to visit the institutions in question. But it's, um, they did this in Britain and realized their mistake when they found that young people only knew two things about history, the Tudors and Nazis, and that nothing else really interested them and there was no sense of chronological development. And what's being offered now is a kind of tasting plate that you can have, do a, a little module on something, maybe on fisheries in Donegal, very interesting in itself, but you're not getting the broad stretch of chronological history, which is the way that we all, for better or worse, understand how things develop over time and change over time. And I think that is very damaging, particularly in this country, in any country, but particularly here with our fraught 20th century history. Uh, we really badly need to know why things happened when they did. Um, just to add to that, I think fundamental to the reform at junior cycle at the moment is to, again, based on, on educational um, philosophy, is to move away from the rote learning uh, mechanism and the, the terminal exam mechanism and into uh, more continuous assessment and project-based and skills-based um, learning. Um, also, just I, those subjects which are now um, compulsory are, I think, Irish, English, maths, and science, possibly, um, which means that all of the other subjects are being offered um, as non-compulsory to schools. Yeah, so um, I think that the, it's not that, that history is, not, is no longer um, compulsory. I actually don't think history was ever compulsory. I think it was in the schools. Um, it was up to them to choose the subjects that they would make compulsory, and I think the majority of schools chose history, um, whereas now they have much more choice and also the time given to each of those subjects is less. So I think that's the problem at the moment. Um, the concept of a student going through school, which is quite possible with absolutely no understanding of history, and to the lady's point from, from just a moment ago, to be able to, to graduate from, from secondary school with, with, without an understanding of their history is, is appalling to me. But. And the, the prospect of losing the one subject that genuinely teaches people how to evaluate evidence, a hugely important thing in these days of so-called fake news, and when we have politicians who are quite prepared to lie unashamedly, and entire television channels that are prepared to tell lies unashamedly. How are people supposed to evaluate the information they're getting if they don't get any training in that? And history is the thing that does that, apart from all the other things it does, it does that superlatively well. So it's, it's a dark prospect watching this coming on. John, you were going to well, say well, something I mean, there? Well, it's, um it's also like the government has definitely downplayed the humanities mm -hmm. and this kind of idea somehow that you can centralize that, oh, we're only going to invest in STEM and that's somehow going to eventually, you know, just science and math is somehow eventually going to be the, the, the goose that lays the golden egg and we'll have innovation. When in fact, 
the humanities always produces, you can't centrally direct innovation and, and that's what history teaches you. Yeah, uh, and, it's, and so the government trying to have this very rigid centralized plan about how to develop a new economy, that's a totally the wrong way just to invest in education, not to try to micro-target mm -hmm. in this way, which is based on, on kind of misconceptions. And that's I, totally, as you said, the critical thinking has never been more valuable, and the absence of critical thinking has very real economic benefits. And it's unfortunate that the, that the government doesn't realize that, or enough people in the government don't realize that. Watch this space. There'll be further ructions going on about it, I'm sure. Gentleman here, I think, on the, my left-hand side. Um, I first became aware of the Civil War in the most unusual circumstances. I was sitting the 1963 English Leaving Certificate paper in Western Australia. I can still see the sky blue paper it was printed on. <laughs> and the piece of prose were given to written about, described in graphic detail, um, two men kind of pursuing one, one another across the rooftops. And uh, I I anyway, in the heel of the hunt, one, the other man gets his quarry, and when he goes over and turns him, o turns him over, who, who is he? Only his own brother. And of course, there was Liam O'Flaherty's story, The Sniper. So my, my, my general question, I suppose, is a reflection on the role of literature. I would be very interested myself, I'm interested myself in the element of chance in the path that the personal paths taken by people in political and ideological divides, such as the Civil War. Is there, uh, would you be conscious and of the role of literature in perhaps uh, bringing out some of the subtleties and nuances involved in the Civil War, but in Irish history generally. Thank you. Absolutely. And Frances Flanagan, who's done a, a brilliant book, actually, on, on yeah, she, um, she did a chapter in the, the Atlas dealing with exactly that point. Um, and, you know, all the, the, the subtleties and the nuances and the disillusionments we we're talking about. Um, and really the fact that, that you know, that, that generation of writers, most of them were involved peripherally or not, you know, the O'Connors, the O'Flaherty's, the Patter O'Donnell's, and so on and so forth. Um, so they all had direct experience, as well as, you know, reacting to the aftermath. And so th some of those books, I mean, O'Flaherty's work and O'Donnell's has been sort of pretty much forgotten now, but O'Donnell has some very interesting work relating back to the revolutionary period as well. Maybe very surprising in some ways, um, in terms of the tone of regret and so on, and, and the sense that, you know, what were we doing putting upon these people? Um, the way we did and so on, you know, which would surprise people for somebody who stayed on the IRA for so long. Um, so yeah, I think literature is hugely important and, you know, I wish we could have given it more attention in, in the Atlas, but I think France does an excellent job there. Again, that was um, an aspect of the interdisciplinary nature of the Atlas in that, you know, there was uh, literary um, people from the English department actually in UCC, um, you know, that their, contribu their contribution to the Atlas was incredibly significant because of that, that literary perspective. I'll just, I'll just add that uh, just because I had this conversation at lunch during the week, uh, I, I don't think anybody captures kind of uh, the, uh, the absurdity and kind of the humanity of it better than Frank O'Connor. I think Frank O'Connor is a short story, it's not just Gus the Nation, all those short stories, a lot of them are just kind of about the, just kind of mad, the, the mad episodes that happen when everything's kind of suspended. And I think he really, I think he, he's great at capturing And also, like, also, Elizabeth Bowen in the last September. Yeah. You know, that's, a, that's an amazing piece of literature. Yeah. Um, Pork based. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I mean, 
anything with Tipperary I should be adding. Throwing in there. <laughs> You're very anxious to placate Tipperary. It's got, to, it's got to be a deep story under there somewhere. Um, can I just say, Katrina, but then that, that literature is so much more useful, I think, than, I mean, I don't want to diss Dan Brino, I know, some yeah. Tipperary and everything, yeah. but oh, my fight for Irish freedom, um, uh, and even Tom Barry, okay, let's do Tom Barry. Um, you know, these are self-aggrandizing, really, accounts, they're, they're partial accounts, they're propagandist accounts. Um, and they don't, you know, they're interesting in their own right and they give us, you know, they, they, they give us a lot. Um, but I think the literature in many ways is sort of more useful in terms of going under the layers, under the skin, you know. Yeah, more nuanced, yeah. more truth, truth through the subjective experience in yeah. lots of ways. We have time for one more question. Somebody just down Someone there, I think you already asked one, did you? Somebody who hasn't asked a question already? Over K, right. Down in the middle, I said that so somebody put a hand up who didn't ask before. Put your hands up or we can't know where you are. Oh, we have somebody here. Great, go ahead. <laughs> right, go ahead. Sorry, uh, yeah, I, had a, well, I have a question, but I just also, uh, I think the two, I have the two Atlas books, which I think are wonderful. I asked my wife for the Atlas of the Irish Revolution for Christmas last year. She bought the wrong one by mistake, so I got, I got it for myself the week after Christmas, so I ended up with the two of them. The question I have is about the outreach program. I'm intrigued by the, uh, the different uh, uh, documentation that's available. I'm just wondering, is that open to the public or is it only available to teachers? Um, the, idea, uh, the idea was to make it available to teachers, but um, I mean, just even the irishrevolution.ie itself is a fantastic resource um, because um, you mentioned Andy Bielenberg earlier on. His, um, oh, his spy files are on that as well. Uh, death registers from the War of Independence, uh, articles by various different historians. Um, but the Atlas of the Irish Revolution Schools resource is an aspect of that website. And you can register and you can look if you like, absolutely. Yeah. So you don't have to be a teacher to? You don't have to be a okay. teacher. Okay, I've been told we can have one more question, so one of the mouse down there. Okay. Um, thank you very much, again, love the book. Um, I'm just struck by uh, both this morning now, speakers have said that, you know, we got through 1916 fairly easily, <laughs> right? And as I think uh, uh, Dr. Boranov has said that, you know, uh, uh, the Irish Revolution will be, a, the War of Independence rather, will be a little bit more problematical. But it strikes me that <coughs> civil war would be even more problematical, yeah? And what, the one that always gets me is, it spiraled down very quickly in brutality. Yeah. You know what, not just that about Bally CD and Oral House, but it was on both sides, right? And I'm just wondering, <coughs> have you any sense of why that happened so quickly in a relatively short period of time? I think that, I think that people had become brutalized from, from they'd been at war for a couple of years in the War of Independence, and the last year of the War of Independence was pretty, was pretty rough. Um, I think from the Free State side, I think that they had one of the arguments against Irish self-determination was the Irish were racially and culturally incapable of governing themselves. And I think that the Free State elite had felt it was really necessary to govern themselves, bring effective government to the country, and if that meant using absolute brutality and uh, and executing as many people as they needed to, they would do that. That they were they were absolutely dedicated in terms of as in their own their own version of nationalism. That this was an imperative, uh, and I think that. 
the and I think things just kind of went down from there. And I also think that there were, and I think an, another interesting one also about the War of Independence period is I think it's pretty clear that Michael Collins had a lot of people who were really, who were more than willing to use brutality in the Civil War. I think that the group that the, the, the real atrocities, and you'd call them that, and carry were committed by core people around Michael Collins. And I think that should be maybe call into question a little bit of Collins' legacy, because I don't know why those people were so willing to use really, really brutal tactics down in County Kerry. Um, and, and in ways, those are, that, that kind of left the, the really um, bitterness. bitterness. But, but I think the Free State thought the war was over in August. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then it, everything changed. The context mm -hmm. changed completely. Um, and it looked like, you know, let's finish this thing off for good. Um, and they went after him, and you know they, you know they met fire with fire, and that, that was the whole and way they, they were thinking, and they absolutely did. And then there was the kind of tit for tat, and mm -hmm. it, it all got got wrong. But I think really it was over by August. Mm -hmm. You know, it shouldn't have gone on. No. <laughs> yeah, you know, had, had, the, had the had the war had the war stopped when it should have. Yeah. Everybody thought it was going to end when the conventional phase of fighting ended in August. Yeah. And had it ended there, we wouldn't be talking. We wouldn't be having these conversations no. at all in politics. Would it? But it was the willingness of the anti-treaty people to continue to make the government, the country, ungovernable yeah. that brought around this response. <clears throat> and then, yeah. You know, George Bernard Shaw said when we got our independence in 1922, it'll be a great day when Ireland realizes that we're no better and no worse than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that the, the exceptionalist thing that we tend to dwell on mm -hmm. a lot is gone. And of course, in every society, there are people who are brutal, there are people who are mm -hmm. stupid, there are people who are wicked, and there's all kinds of different variations on those themes, as well as wonderful, heroic, and idealistic people. And really, our job now is to do what our historians are doing which is to lay out as much information as we can over the coming years while we're dealing with these traumatic experiences. And those of you who saw Keepers of the Flame will realize it is still intensely traumatic for some families. Um, we have to help ourselves to understand this in the fullest and most comprehensive way and try not to be judgmental if we can possibly avoid it. Um, and end the next five years, I hope, with, with a better understanding of what we've come to see. Thank you all for coming. I know we could go on for another hour here because the, the appetite for a chat from these wonderful people is so great. But please thank Donald O'Driscoll, Helena O'Keefe, and John Borganova. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. If you'd like to subscribe, you'll find all the information you need at dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and we're also on Twitter at HistFest.